You're listening to the Successful Executive Podcast with John Bellino. So I want to thank all of you for listening in this afternoon to the Successful Executive Podcast interview. We're going to be speaking with Kristen Albright, who is a Senior Managing Actuary at Liberty Mutual. Good afternoon, Kristen. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, John? Doing awesome. I'm doing awesome. Now, you and I have known each other a long time. And that we have. <laughs> I think it's about 30 years now. Is that about right? Uh, that's about right, yeah. <laughs> so how did you get started in the industry? Did you pursue actuarial science in college originally, or were you pursuing something else and you fell into it, or how did, how did this take place? Well, so I was an actuarial science major. Um, I had always liked math, and, you know, I knew I, I wanted to do something um, related to either math or science, um, but I really okay. didn't want to be a teacher, and I didn't want to do research, um, and I, I learned about the actuarial profession when my um, calculus teacher in high school had a couple of actuaries come in and talk to us. Um, that was my first exposure to the field. Um, and I ended up going to the University of Illinois, and they happened to have an actuarial science program. So um, I decided, you know, I took a look at the curriculum. I really liked the blend of math and business um, uh-huh. in, in the syllabus. And so I, you know, I, I made that my major, and here I am. That's interesting. And and did you have any knowledge of the actuarial field before you had been exposed to it by your calculus teacher? No, not at all. Nope, I had had never heard of it. Um, And and frankly, I didn't didn't walk out of that discussion convinced that I wanted to be an actuary. I just, you know, I I had at least heard of it at that point in time. Um, And you know, over the course of the next year or so, um, learned a little bit more about it enough to say that, you know, it sounded like something that I should, I should try. Um, and I did. (laughs) And I guess I liked it. I would say so. I would say so. So (laughs) you've been not worried for how long now? Uh, well, um, I mean, I've I've been working in the industry for 31 years, um, and you know, I started out in in an actuarial program, um, and right. I've done it. I've done a lot Edna. of different things. Pardon right. me. I what met you when you were. I met you when you had started out at the actuarial program at Aetna. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, which is interesting because at the time, Aetna had the largest actuarial program in the world, if I remember correctly. It wouldn't surprise me. I I don't know that it was the biggest in the world, but it certainly was very, very large. Well, I know the recruiter who ran the program, that's at least what she told me, but I do know that back in the 80s, Aetna was the biggest property casualty insurer in the world, which, again, most people are shocked at that because they're not quite that big anymore. 
you know. Well, they're but, and they're not even in the property casualty business anymore. That's correct. They've changed. They've changed. Yep. So, so in the 31 years you've been in the business, how many different companies have you worked for? And I know this is your second stint now back at Liberty because you were there in the past, right? Yep. And you just returned yep. recently. So, yeah. like, so, how many different companies have you worked with? Because most, most again, actuaries tend to stay in the same company for quite some time. Uh, I have worked for three different companies, so not not a lot. Um, and you know, as as you said, this is my second my second stint with Liberty. Um, I spent 13 years there several years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But so three different companies that I've worked for. There you go. Okay. And what were your roles with the different companies? <laughs> were they relatively similar or were they quite divergent? Quite, one firm uh, quite divergent, yes. I've, I've done a lot of different things over the course of my career. Um, you know, even, even if I go all the way back to my Aetna days in their actuarial student program, I had the opportunity to <clears throat> do a couple of what they called non-traditional rotations, which were, um, you know, putting actuarial students in departments where, where they wouldn't normally be. So, for example, I, I spent a year and a half in an underwriting department. Um, and from that experience, really learned um, a lot about the business and learned that I wanted to be more than just your typical actuary. Um, so I have right. sought out opportunities throughout my career um, to do different things and to learn um, and be exposed to different parts of the insurance business. So I've um, I've done lots of different things within the actuarial space, but I've also run an underwriting department. I've run a product development team. I've wow. um, start I've started up a claims analytics function um, where I was embedded in the claim organization. Um, so so. I've done a lot of different things, and and I've gone sort of in and out of traditional actuarial jobs, um, just as you know the the opportunities present themselves, and as sort of the 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 mood hits me of of how I want to focus my time and energy at any point in time. So give give me an example of a traditional actuarial role versus a non-traditional <clears throat> actuarial role. Okay. So um, the role that I'm in right now is a very traditional actuarial role um, in a lot of ways. Um, so in the property casualty insurance business, um, insurers don't necessarily know the full extent of their liabilities right away. When right. claims happen, um, we don't necessarily know the value of those claims. Some claims can take years to, to actually um, fully evolve and, and be closed and settled. So um, actuaries um, perform a reserving function to determine the appropriate reserves that need to be held on the liability side of the balance sheet of an insurance company. Um, right. it, is a, it is probably the most traditional actuarial role um, that, that you'll ever come across. And that's what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm leading a reserving 
function um, at Liberty Mutual. So um, that's sort of one side of, of, the, of the coin. Um, if, if I go all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum, probably the most non-traditional role that I've done was running a commercial lines product development team. It was, it was completely non-actuarial and completely non-analytical. Um, it was very much about, you know, developing policy forms to meet the needs of our business units um, and to meet the needs of our, our prospective customers um, and working with, with our actuarial organization to figure out how to price those products, working with our technology organization to get them implemented, working with our compliance organization to get them filed and approved for use in each of the states. Um, but, you know, my role in all of that was completely non-actuarial. Um, so that's the okay. exact opposite end of the spectrum. Now, did you have a preference as to which side you liked the most? Or, found, or, or is there one side that tends to be more challenging? It sounds like the second, the non-traditional sounds more challenging uh, to me. Well, that, that accurate that or not necessarily? That particular role was um, very challenging for me because it was it was outside of my traditional expertise, um, right. and right. you know my I so I had very talented, smart um, underwriters and um, product people working for me who were doing all of the heavy lifting um, and. You know, unfortunately, I didn't share their expertise. So, so when when we got really crunched for resources and crunched for time, and we had, you know, a whole lot of work that needed to be done, I wasn't able to be as much help to my team as I would have liked to have been in that particular role. You know, my role was more helping to establish priorities and manage expectations with, you know, with the business units that were coming to us for help and and trying to facilitate the process but I couldn't actually roll up my sleeves and, and write a policy form. Um, I just didn't have the knowledge and expertise to do it. Um, I would also say that as time went on, I discovered that I really missed um, having an analytical component to my job. Um, okay. That was, that was something that, that I discovered by its absence was really, really important to me. I wanted to, um, be a part of understanding the performance of the business, understanding the profitability of the business, and helping to um, establish, helping to set the strategy of the business, mm -hmm. helping the business to grow and become profitable, and and you know, being being able to provide insights based on data and analysis. And that was completely absent from that role. And as time went on, um, I think I did that role for, you know, maybe three years, something like that. Um, I came to realize how much I really missed to that. Okay. And is that something that you do now in, in your current role is if you've incorporate you or you incorporate more of that in with what you're doing now? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's, the, this role is is all about analyzing data, and and you know frankly, could in some organizations be almost too analytical 
for my liking. Um, you know, there are there there are actuarial roles in in companies, and sort of the stereotypical actuarial role is very much a backroom function, um, where the actuaries go and they crunch their numbers um, under the dark of night, and they share those numbers with people, and then you know the the business people go on about running their business, and the actuaries go back and crunch some more numbers. Um, that's not the kind of actuary I have ever wanted to be. Um, and okay. you know, I, I, I don't want to be and won't be in, in this role. Um, one of the things that, that made this very traditional actuarial role appealing to me, um, was the fact that, um, the man hiring me shares my vision for the need for actuaries to be very closely aligned with and integrated with the businesses that they support um, and that he wanted his reserving team, his reserving function to be a true business partner and be a strategic thought partner with the business. Um, and that's, that's the blend that, that I have usually sought out in, in the roles that I've, that I've taken um, with the exception of that product development role. Um, is, is a blend of being very, you know, very integrated with the business, but bringing the actuarial or analytic perspective to the business. That, to me, would make the most sense because, obviously, you've got a reserve for the unexpected, right? But yep. I would... It makes sense to me for somebody who runs a business to have a better understanding of how things actually work so that you can create the profits. Uh, that's what the business is in business for, other than helping people, right? So, that's right. Uh, that's right. But, that, but that the unique sense. thing about, about property casualty insurance is that we don't know the cost of our products when we sell it because – we're selling a policy today for something that may or may not happen in the future. So, right. you know, the more analytical support um, we can bring to our business leaders, the better equipped they are to make well-informed business decisions. Yes. Yes. It's interesting what you just said because most people – really don't understand well first of all most people have no idea what an actuary is and sure. most people have no idea how premiums are devised in the first place they kind of think it's thought through in a bubble so it's interesting what you said as far as you know, we really don't know what the cost of the products are that we're selling uh, that would be shocking to probably the majority of people out there but it makes sense because you don't know whether something's going to happen or not, you know? Right. So, so if you could identify one or two key, one or two keys to your success as an executive, what, what would you say they were for you and have been for you? Yeah, I think, I think the number one thing, and I've, I've alluded to it a couple times in this, in this conversation, um, I have always made it, a point to learn as much as I possibly could about the business I was supporting. 
and make sure that I was closely aligned with what the strategy was, what they were trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. and making sure that I, I understood the business so that I could understand and appropriately interpret the data that I was looking at. Um, you know, data data can lie. If you know, oh, yeah. data is is very subject to interpretation. And if you don't understand what's creating that data, whether it's you know, whether it's the business that's that's generating the experience that we're looking at, whether it's the internal company processes that are developing, you know, that are feeding that data into the analytical tools that I'm looking at. If I don't understand all of that, I can very easily misinterpret the data and give people bad counsel on on how they should be thinking about the performance of their business. So um, the more I've always, I consider myself an insurance professional um, and a business person who happens to be an actuary. And that's the way I've thought about my career since very, very early on. you know, I, I'm I'm not an actuary, period, end of story. I'm a business person. I'm an right. insurance professional. I'm a student of the property casualty insurance business. Um, and, oh, by the way, my background is that of an actuary, but I, I don't limit myself to, to thinking like an actuary. I, I think like a business person, um, and I think that mm-hmm. has made me – much more valuable to um, my business partners over the years, and that's what has allowed me to to get the opportunities that I've had. Absolutely, I, and I, it's funny. I I've seen that in you uh, as as I as we know we've worked together for over three decades or nearly three decades now, and in the work that we've done together. Uh, you know, you've operated in a similar fashion uh, with, you tend to be very forward thinking and you like the big picture broken down into components with how does each one of these things actually work. Uh, and it's, it's almost like an engineering approach, but uh, looking at it from a big picture standpoint because things can change. So... Is right. that an approach that you would say that you bring to your team as far as educating them to think in the same light and clients as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have I have always um, tried to impart what I've learned along the way um, about the business to to the people that I work with. Um, you know, whether they're whether they're my staff or my peers or my counterparts on on the business side. You know, for example, um, when I was running a claims analytics function, I was working very closely with the leadership of our claims department, but I had come from an underwriting and product area. So I was able to bring insights of how the business was thinking about you know, their distribution strategy and their sales strategy and their underwriting appetite and things like that to the claims people that I was now working with to help them better understand the business they were supporting. Um, Because Mm -hmm. we all will 
be more valuable and help the company be more successful if we're all able to think broadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that makes total sense. So what do you, what do you believe makes some executives successful while others have struggled? Um, you know, the, the most successful executives that, that I know and that I've had the, the privilege to work with, um, you know, in addition to just, you know, being good business people, understanding their business, all those, that's kind, that's sort of table stakes. Um, but what has really set the, the excellent executives apart from, from the rest um, is leadership. And, you know, being really good leaders who inspire and energize their teams, um, who make their teams feel valued and empowered and committed to the organization's success. Um, okay. You know, you, if you can create that kind of energy and you can create that kind of followership and shared mm-hmm. vision, um, you can accomplish an awful lot. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of working for, um, you know, a number of really great leaders. And I've, you know, I've worked for some that weren't such great leaders. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the difference is, is really astonishing. Oh, I would imagine. I would imagine. And you always want to surround yourself with people smarter than yourself, right? If you can. <laughs> well, that's true. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and there are, you know, you, you should never assume that you have all the answers. Um, that's correct. And you don't, you and can. you don't want to have all the answers. Um, no. <laughs> You'll never get anything done. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and even if you think you have the answers, you might be wrong, and and you'll miss out on on some some great opportunities for your organization if if you don't um, listen to those around you who may know more than you. They may just have a different perspective than you. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's value in in all of that. Absolutely. It's interesting with the leadership, some of the best leaders can, as you said, you can create that enthusiasm that's infectious. You can accomplish so much with so few people sometimes, right? Yes. Uh, Yes. So you've managed teams of people throughout your career. You mentioned it a few moments ago. Well, what would you say was the largest number of people you had to manage in the past or even now? Um, the largest team I've managed was 30 or 35 people. Wow. That's a lot. To me, that's yeah, a lot. And... I managed too. But I, <laughs> obviously I've got a lot of clients all over the world, you know, so people's view would be like, well, you're managing hundreds of people, but not, not all at once, all at the same not, time. Not day in and day out. Right. No, not day in and out. Day in and out. So, yeah, I, I have immense um, appreciation for people that can do that. So, um, 
what types of challenges would that does that, like that does that entail with that number of people? Well, I, I mean, if some people that are going to be mind, listening they, to this, what was that? Some people who will be listening to this have never managed more than maybe five people, mm. and they want to aspire to managing that number of people, and they that would be helpful for them to know, right? Like, okay, okay, if this is an area you want to go in. These are the things you have to be aware of because it's different than with five. So that's why I was asking the question. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of things. I think first and foremost, the most important thing um, when managing a, you know, larger group of people is to make sure everybody understands what your, what your goals are, what, you know, what, what, why are we here? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. What's our role in the organization? What are our priorities? Um, what are the things that we need to, to get done and why? How do they impact the business? Uh, when people don't understand where they fit in the bigger picture, um, they're, they're going to struggle a little bit um, sure. and then maybe struggle a lot and maybe not feel invested in the organization. Um, and, you know, it only takes a couple of people feeling that way to bring an entire department down from a morale perspective. Um, so I think that's, that's the most important thing as a manager of, you know, any size team, but particularly a larger team, is doing whatever you can do to make sure everyone understands where they fit, what their role is, why it's important, how it's helping the organization, how it's helping, you know, not only your own department, but the company as a whole or the business unit that you're working in or, you know, all the way sort of rolling up to the, to the, the highest levels within the organization. Um, because then they feel aligned around that sense of purpose. Um, sure. And, you know, making sure that, that, you do things to make people feel appreciated, <clears throat> um, whether it's, you know, formal employee recognition programs, whether it's just being, you know, visible and, and, you know, walking around within the department and saying hi to people and how was your weekend and, you know, how are things going and do you need anything? Just making people feel like you care uh, goes mm -hmm. a long way toward, toward making them happy and satisfied um, and you know like I said when 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 people are happy and satisfied and and feel good about what they're doing um, the whole team functions better absolutely would you say in your opinion would you say there's a sweet spot as far as the size of the team that you found for yourself or for others um, I, no, not really. I, I think it depends on the nature of, of you know, what it is we're trying to do. Um, you know, I've, I've managed very small teams, um, you know, and recently I've, I've managed very small teams of, you know, just a few people. Um, and that has some benefits because you can obviously be, you know, closer to all of those individuals 
um, and, you know, not only really understand what they're doing and be present for them to help them overcome obstacles and, and help, you know, guide them and give them direction and, and, and really be available to them, which is a lot harder to do when you have a much larger organization. Um, you know, so that's, that's a positive. The, the negative is, you know, maybe you don't have as much capacity as, as you'd like to have. Or, you know, in my case, I was, I was in an executive level position and had, um, you know, individual contributors reporting directly to me, and I, I was not able to be as available to them um, as I always wanted to be because I was being pulled in a lot of different directions um, for some of those executive responsibilities. So, you know, I think there there's no, from my perspective, there's no perfect size for the team. The perfect size for a team is the one that allows you to most effectively accomplish whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, okay. And that can be, it can be big, it can be small. It, it depends on, on what it is that, um, you know, what your, what your function is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Most popular answer I get is a team of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I can manage me, I can manage a bunch of people. <laughs> and then they go on to elaborate, of course, you know. Of course. So, of course. So what do you see as the big challenges facing your industry today? Mm. Um, and what, what might those impacts look like? Yeah. So um, the insurance industry is facing a tremendous amount of disruption currently. Um, so many things happening that? in the there are so many things happening in the world around us that are are that are going to impact our business. For example, techno, technological advances, um, mm -hmm. the sharing economy, for example. Um, as a you know, as a second example, those those kinds of things change the nature of risk, and you know, insurance is all about the transfer of risk, and we we provide insurance to take risk, you know, away from individuals or businesses. Um, Correct. So, as the nature of those risks is evolving. Um, you know, auto insurance, just think about, you know, telematics, being able to track, you know, all of the different, um, every little detail about how an individual drives, where they drive, when they drive. Um, that provides a lot of additional data and information that um, insurance companies haven't necessarily figured out what to do with. Um, the sharing economy is as you get people who no longer want to own cars, they don't want to own homes, um, they want, you know, different modes of transportation, that changes how we think about the products that we sell. Um, you know, traditional auto insurance isn't, you know, may not be quite as relevant in, in the future as it has historically been. So the insurance industry needs to be really thinking about how the world around us, just the world in which we all live, 
is changing and evolving and make sure that we're thinking about the needs of future generations. Because, you know, a lot of these, these things take time to, to develop. They take time to implement. They take time, you know, to, to go from concept to, you know, available in the marketplace. Um, and there are a lot of companies out there that are, that are really, really good with data and analytics and are really, really good with customer experience and are, they, they may not know the insurance business, but they, they know how to build a product and get it to market fast. So there's a lot of um, startups out there trying to do things differently in the insurance business. There's a lot of um, startups trying to find ways to support and help the insurance industry, which is, which is great. Um, but the insurance business has not historically been known for um, moving real fast. Right. Um, and and right. for an industry that for an industry that is our our greatest asset is data, um, mm-hmm. so that we can analyze that product and figure out how much it really cost us when we sold it a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, so that we have an idea how we might want to charge for it going forward. You know, data is our lifeblood, um, but we have not, as an industry, kept pace with with some of the other businesses out there that that are much better with enormous amounts of data and much better with analytical tools and and applying advanced analytics to data um, to you know figure out what it's what it's telling them and to help them make their business better. If you look at, you know, the Googles and the Amazons and, and the things that they do with data, it's light years beyond what the insurance business can do. And, and we need to get better at that um, because insurance is, is not a business for the, for the faint of heart. And it's not a business that um, a lot of companies want to get into if they don't really understand it because it can, it can bite you. Um, but very quickly, right? It it can very quickly. I've seen it many times over the course of my career. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are companies out there that, that are, are looking for ways to, to get into, to capitalize on all of this disruption. Um, and if the traditional insurance industry, the traditional insurance companies don't find a way to become more responsive and more creative and more innovative, um, there, there's a risk that, that will become a whole lot less relevant, too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting what you mentioned because it's funny. As I mentioned, I, I started in the business in 86 on the – and you know what I do, the, obviously, the uh, life, disability, the wealth, the um, investment side of the business. Yep. But um, I've always, you know, naturally, I address PNC in discussions, as you know. Mm-hmm. But um, the actuaries that I've worked with throughout my career have always been with large companies. But just in the last two years now, I've had three clients go to work for startups. Now, it's interesting mm-hmm. Clients of mine who are in the IT business, they go to startups all the time. 
but to hear of an actuary going into a startup is just what that's like you know hear about that but it's right it's the, i see it as a trend which you just described um and you just told me what you know the fact that they're able to analyze data i guess that's what they're doing is they're 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 approaching these uh the the, the business with uh the opportunity or ability to sort through data in a different fashion uh, or use it in a different fashion than the large companies traditionally been able to do. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, definitely in part. And I think the other thing is, is some of these startups um, are, are being formed and backed by people who don't necessarily have expertise in the insurance business. So, you know, the, yes. the smart ones, the smart ones are looking to bring in people who understand the insurance business. And, and that's where, um, I mean, and they also want, they need analytical horsepower. So that's where an actuary who has um, also been, um, you know, an insurance professional um, can, can really be a valuable asset to some of these companies because, they have the analytic capabilities. They understand data. They understand how to analyze data, um, and they know the insurance business. So they they can fulfill two needs. That you know, when you're a startup, you you're looking to do as much as you can with as little as you can. Um, so so a smart business oriented actuary can can be a huge asset to some of those companies. I I. That that makes sense to me because I I have read articles, I mean I see stuff all the time about you know this company is going to try doing this and I can't rattle off anything specifically right now but uh, I I've read of things where it's like how in the world do they think they're going to actually pull that off because it sounds like they're forgetting there's risk involved with this and. Um, you know, obviously, an insurance company can't function without an actuary. Uh, you know, the the actuary is the person. Most people think it's the CPAs and so forth that are um, the ones that kind of police what's going on. And to a degree, that's true. But uh, as uh, as an old colleague of yours once told me, uh, without a team of actuaries, insurance company will just collapse because they'll go off in areas that they shouldn't normally go off. Uh, without understanding the true risk of what they're about to embark in. So, right. Okay. So. Yep. That is now, that is that is a definite possibility. Yes. Yes. So. Now, I I found personally that balancing one's personal and business life can be very difficult, particularly if you're responsible for a lot of people or projects at the office. Uh, I know with you, you've got two active kids, uh, one of them will be starting college soon with the search, uh, and she's an equestrian too, right? Uh, she used to be. Ah, she doesn't do it anymore. Okay. Not currently. She's, your kids she's, are at least she's at least taking a break. But there you go. She, she's, she plays tennis, and that's about to start up, so that'll keep her out of trouble. So there you go. So how do you balance the demands of your company while managing to attend as many of the events as possible? Because again, most of most of my clients and most actuarial folks have kids. 
and they've got heavy demands placed on them, not only from their business, but, hey, I want to be able to go see all these things that my kids are doing. How, how have you found balancing that out um, over the years? Or how do you yeah, do and it, it certainly um, certainly has been a challenge. Um, and I would say I have missed, certainly missed things um, over the course of my, my kids' childhood that um, I might have preferred not to miss. Um, but but I've, I've been pretty successful in getting to, you know, most of the, most of the more important things. And, you know, I've been fortunate that um, I've worked for companies or more to the point for managers um, who, you know, were, were, who gave me some flexibility and, and gave me the, the freedom, you know, if my daughter had a tennis match, you know, after, after school one day and, and it was at a location that I could get to from the office, you know, so I, so I duck out a little early and I go watch her tennis match. You know, if, if the, if the, the work is getting done if we're achieving our objectives if you know if if i'm not abusing the the privilege of having flexibility then you know i i was treated as a professional and as long as i acted like a professional and deserved to be treated like a professional it it all you know pretty much worked out um so you know unquestionably i've had to make some choices and some trade-offs um, over the course of my career and over the course of my, you know, my, my other full-time job as a mom. Um, mm-hmm. But generally speaking, Which, I, I think I've, I think I've managed to balance it pretty well and, and I don't regret the choices that I've made. That's good. That's good. Now you're an accomplished equestrian yourself, right? <laughs> well, uh, sure. <laughs> Accomplished might be a stretch, but, but yeah, many, and, and, and I'm not—I'm not currently active either in that in that sport. Not anymore? Um, really? No, okay. I nope. I I had to retire my horse, um, you know, for good about a year ago, a little over okay. a year ago, um, and and he'd been injured off and on for a few years. I was trying to trying to rehab him but it it didn't work so he's now retired and you know literally out to pasture down in Virginia um, <laughs> living the good life and and I'm I'm horseless for the time being anyway so you don't own any horses now well I still own him <laughs> oh okay yeah. okay because I know there was a time when you owned a few of them so, I, I right? did at one point have uh, yeah I did at one point have three, very yeah. briefly. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, when you were riding horses, you used to compete in events, right? I did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I thought was impressive because I've I've ridden horses before, and they they really don't like me riding on them, and I don't really like riding them myself. <laughs> and just, just, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've got a crazy story I'll share with you at another time that 
it will get an absolute hoot out of. I don't know that I would want to tell it now and embarrass myself in front of the entire world. But um, this this may seem like an odd question, but are there any similarities between the skills that you had to master for your equestrian capabilities and competing and your current profession? It's not something you just jump into. Uh, no, it's not. Um, probably, I, I guess maybe you may the. Not be an answer to that. No, I think I think there is, and it's um, it, it gets to sort of some of the soft skills, um, the the communication, the empathy, the listening, um, being aware of the people around you and and what's important to them and and how to make them respond the way you want them to respond that's you know when when you're riding a horse you know you you have a teammate you have a partner um and you don't that's speak the same language Wait, we were <laughs> you, partners. you were not partners no. Uh, no. yeah then it doesn't tend it doesn't tend to go well if you're not um so, what he you know, as, <laughs> yeah, so, so as, as the rider, um, if you want the horse to respond to you and if you want the horse to do what you want it to do um, and do it happily and willingly, then you need to understand how to communicate with Correct. that animal. And and they're not all the same. And no. there are styles of riding that some horses like and completely different styles of riding that other horses like and respond to. And, you know, the, the really, really good riders um, can adapt their riding style to different horses and what different horses respond well to. The same as, as really good managers can adapt their management style to the needs of different individuals on their team. So, you know, I, I think there's a parallel there. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So you've been an actuary for three decades now. For you, what has kept the business and the career interesting? Um, well, people will think I'm crazy for saying this, but the property casualty insurance business is a fascinating business. Um, it really is. And it's, it's dynamic. It's changing all the time. Um, the environment around us is changing all the time. I mean, aside from, you know, the major disruptions that I was talking about earlier, just, you know, the, the, the things that impact um, our economy, they impact the insurance business. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a, a recession has widespread implications for my business. And economic recovery has widespread implications for my business. And it varies by, it varies by type of insurance, by line of business, um, what impacts those have. The, um, the, over the course of time, the, the nature of the risks that we're insuring has always changed and evolved. 
Um, and, it's, and it's a highly competitive business, so we always, there are always other competitors out there trying to do things a little bit differently and mm-hmm. modifying their products, modifying their marketing approach, modifying, you know, their, their underwriting appetite, um, which, you know, we have to respond, we have to be aware of, we have to respond to in some form or fashion. Um, and so it's, it's always changing. And, um, you know, I also appreciate, um, the importance of the property casualty insurance business in supporting the economy. Um, if it weren't for insurance, Mm -hmm. we, you know, our economy would, would grind to a halt because businesses couldn't afford to make the kinds of investments that they have to make to improve their products, to innovate um, and develop new products, to sell them and, and, you know, be, be confident that if something bad happens, um, they've got an economic backstop in the form of, of insurance. So Absolutely. Um, recognizing the importance of the industry and then just, you know, seeing how it's changed and evolved over the years um, has all has has kept it very fresh and interesting to me. That's great. That's great. So my last question for you would be: What's your number one piece of advice for those who find themselves to be new executives, and why? Um, I would say. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask the stupid ah. questions. Um, you know, you're, those are hard things to do. They are, and I've I've had to learn that, and to some degree, I learned it the hard way, um, because I didn't like to ask for help. Um, I've, you know, that's that's just part of my nature is I don't like to ask for help, um, and I've learned that um, that that's a mistake as as a new executive um you know your new team my new team um has a lot of great knowledge and experience and insight and i am not doing anybody any favors um especially myself if i don't um leverage that and let them help me so that we can all be successful together. That makes a lot of sense. And those, like I said, those are two very, very difficult things to do. And you have to set the pride and the ego aside in order to make that happen. But it's interesting when you can actually do that, have the freedom to do that, that's when the remarkable breakthroughs happen, right? Absolutely. And and again, I have had the opportunity to witness new executives coming into an organization and not being at all reluctant to ask a ton of questions um and and you know putting that pride and that ego aside um because they know how important it is to get this information and and to learn as much as they can from their new team and it's um 
I'm always really impressed when I see it because it's, it is such a hard thing to do. It's interesting. Uh, when Ford was having its difficulties right after, and again, I, I want to say maybe around 2008, the company was in really big trouble. And they, they brought, for the first time, to my knowledge, they brought an outsider in, a guy named Alan Mullally, who had worked at GE. And he did just what you, just what you said. He actually went around to as many people in the firm as possible, even right down on asking guys and men and women who build cars and trucks, you know, questions. And then he formulated a plan to turn the company around, which he did. And the company became a phenomenal success under his tutelage. But it didn't happen without him doing what you just said. And right. he said uh, he, it was really impressive to watch somebody turn a company that big that had those kinds of problems around in such a, a quick fashion in not making not making massive changes with the different models that they had either. It's changing the direction of how they, he, they were going to go. So, but Christian, I, I want to really thank you for your very generous time this afternoon, sharing all of the successes and insight into a profession that, in my humble opinion, remains largely anonymous to the public's true understanding. And as you know, I'm always looking to get connected with smart people like yourself in the industry who might be interested in appearing on the Successful Executive Podcast. And I'll always welcome introductions by email to anyone in your network who might be a fit for an interview. So I want to thank you again, Kristen. All right. This has it been was awesome. my pleasure, John, as always. The Successful Executive Podcast is hosted by John Bellino. John helps successful executives create a plan for lifetime income by addressing the five key areas that impact your wealth and retirement. To discover what these five key areas are and how to create a plan for each one, visit johnjbellino.com slash webinar for a complimentary video presentation. Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian. New York, New York. Copyright 2005 to 2019, Guardian. John Bellino is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ 14021 Metropolis Avenue, Fort Myers, Florida, 33912, 239-561-2900. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Alliance Financial Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Alliance Financial Group, and opinions stated are their own.